Morning. Well, as Paul says, we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And I think we've seen just amazing work of God in our hearts so far today. And um, I pray that yeah, as we go into this ministry of the word, that God will speak powerfully uh, to each of our hearts. So if you have your Bible with you, would you please open it with me to the 115th Psalm? And reading from verse 115... Um, If I could ask you all just to stand as we read God's word, we do this as a sign of submission to his authority, recognizing that God is himself here speaking to us today through his word. Reading from verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. This is God's word to us so far. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father... In the heavens and here with us today, we thank you for the grace of of gathering together to hear your word. May you open our hearts to receive the light of your word and may you be glorified in this place as we speak of how you have cared for each and every single one of us by making your truth available to us in the scriptures. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the only one through whom we, we may approach your throne. Amen. Well, greetings to all of you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, um, and grace and peace to you. To our guests here today, a a very warm welcome to you in in particular, and I hope that so far you have been blessed, and the Lord will continue to bless this time with us and make it fruitful in your hearts. I've titled the sermon today, He is Not Silent, the God Who Speaks. There is much that can be said about this text today, but I'd like us to zoom in on just a few parts, Um, and that's specifically, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. Christians believe two foundational things. One, God is. He exists. And two, God speaks. You'll notice through the Old Testament that there's a constant mocking of all the idols, of all the false gods. And this mocking is usually focused on their inability to speak, their inability to move. There's a verse, I think it's in Isaiah, where God mocks the um, idols, and he says, it's like the scarecrow in the cucumber field. If it has to move, you have to pick it up and move it around. But our God is in the heavens. As Christians, we celebrate not just that God has spoken and that he is speaking and that he will continue to speak, but that his revelation is preserved for us perfectly in the scriptures. And his love and care for us includes the fact that he saw to the preservation of the scriptures through the ages. Starting with the company of prophets in the Old Testament through to the sending of his son, in the new covenant, 
and the inspiration of the Bible for the maturity of the church. But why has God spoken? Does God not have a purpose for each and everything that he does? Of course. And Habakkuk 2.14 tells us this purpose. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's speech creates. God's speech reveals. And this revelation tells us about God so that he may be glorified and that we may have joy. Of course, there are a lot of ways in which God can be glorified. Today we're going to look at just two, and they are your joy and your worship. As we begin to discuss God's word, I'd like to begin looking at someone whose love for the word I long to have. That's the psalmist in Psalm 119, where we read, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. Reading this kind of prayer is really humbling for me. It's actually uncomfortable. See, this is not always true for me. I'm often far more interested in the new book I have on theology than God's word. I'm sometimes more, my strongest impulse when I wake up in the morning is to check Facebook instead of seat myself under the authority of God's inerrant and inspired word. And some days I don't want to do anything except relax and and watch TV. And I, I desire revelation from God while the Bible gathers dust on the shelf. Meanwhile, the psalmist is enjoying the word. And in fact, it says that he enjoys it more than all riches. All the wealth in the world, that's a lot of joy. And I can't completely identify with that always. And what's worse, this isn't even a model of exceptional love for God's word. This is a model of true love for God's word. So why is it that I struggle? Why is it that we struggle to love God's word the way the psalmist does here. I, I think we have a clue in Psalm 43.5 where the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. See, the psalmist doesn't say, Why do you not understand this doctrine, O my brain? But rather, why are you cast down, O my soul. The Hebrew word for soul is here is napsi, which is translated elsewhere as life. It's speaking of the heart, of your being. And so he doesn't address his mind. He addresses his heart. It's the seat of the will. It's the seat of the affections. It's the seat of desires, the seat of emotions. But at the same time, the psalmist is hoping in God. And he has hope because he knows about God. 
He knows God's intervention in history. He knows God's promises. And he does so because of Scripture. In Psalm 77, 11, it says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. In Psalm 105, 8, he remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. It seems then that the life of faith, the Christian life, our walk, involves both the mind and the heart. That seems to have come up repeatedly today. Before we go and look ahead at how this plays out in our lives, let's just consider for a moment what happens when we primarily rely on the mind and when we primarily rely on the heart. So what if it's mostly in my head? Well, God has given us an amazing brain. It utilizes our senses to collect information. It processes that information. It interprets that information. And it helps us to act on that information. It even stores that information. But if you look at the functions we just described, the the brain seems like an interface between the world and the heart. Information is of little use unless it changes the heart. So if it doesn't change the heart, if it doesn't change the way we feel, it's not going to change the way that we act. And this brings us to the very important matter of doctrine. Doctrine is a word like the word theology. It means statements about what a person or a group believes to be true. The phrase has caught a bit of a bad rap in various parts of church history, and never quite so much, though, as it has today. In mainline churches today, a lot of theology has been jettisoned, sent away as something divisive, something dangerous, and something oppressive. And in the name of some vague, anemic, false, unbiblical claim of love, churches are compromising on the gospel, and they're accepting and they're even tolerating, and they're even celebrating sin. But you see, you can't escape doctrine. You can't escape theology. Every single person in this room is a theologian. Even an atheist is a theologian, because the statement, God does not exist, is a theological statement. The statement, doctrine does not matter, is a doctrinal statement. You can't escape it. Everybody is doing theology. But surely we can also see that it is important to discuss, to condense, and to share what we believe to be the truth. That's what we do every time we think about God, every time we talk about God, every time we worship, every time we share the gospel. But again, there is a great danger. The danger is that you will know a lot about God and yet not know him at all. We have examples in Scripture. The Sadducees, they were experts in Scriptures, and yet Jesus said to them, how's this? You are wrong because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. And these people knew the Scriptures back to front, yet they did not know the Scriptures, and they did not know the power of God. Also to the Pharisees, who knew the entirety of the content of Scripture, you realize most of them had the whole thing memorized. Um, he said to them, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, 
you would know my father also. Wow. They were incredible scholars of the scriptures, and yet they did not know God. Hell will be full of people who have excellent knowledge of the Bible, but never knew God. They missed the whole point of the revelation because they knew the content and they did not know the author. It was Francis Schaeffer who said something fantastic. There is surely nothing more ugly than an orthodoxy without compassion or understanding. This is the point. The, object, the objective of doctrine, the objective of theology, the objective of knowledge about God is to know God and to be known by Him and to worship Him rightly. And if you do not have this objective, all you will be left with is a cold, hard orthodoxy. If all we have is knowledge about God, we will be hard-hearted, stiff-necked, harsh, unforgiving, critical. The world does not need that, and God condemns it. And what if it's mostly in my heart? Well, the heart is incredible. God has given us the heart as the source of affections, and therefore our will, and therefore our actions. In his wisdom, he created us in a way that ultimately it's our passions that direct the activities that we take on, the decisions we make, the things that we do. But here again is a great danger. Because of sin, the unregenerate heart leads automatically into evil passions. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What is this saying? Well, John Calvin phrased this really well when he said that the heart is a perpetual factory of idols. <laughs> the, the, the default output from the heart is idolatry. It's things made in the image of us. And so when we engage our hearts to worship God, if it is done without knowledge of God, it will not be worship. It will be idolatry. We'll be worshiping God because of what we would like to be true about him instead of what is true about him. That's why a lot of so-called worship in churches today is actually just a frenzy of self-expression. See, hell will be full of people who claim to love God but knew nothing about him. And so all they did for every breath of their life was commit idolatry. Because they wrote a convenient God into their own scripts. So Christians should not want to be described the way that Paul describes the natural man in Romans 16, uh, 6.19. As ones who present their bodies as slaves to impurity and lawlessness. Leading to more lawlessness. Notice the term there. Lawlessness. It's the Greek word anomia. Meaning, literally, having no law. Can you see the contrast to what our psalmist says. He says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Or to what is written in Psalm uh, chapter 1, 1 to 2. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. And Paul warned that lawlessness leads to more lawlessness in that scripture we read from Romans. 
It's a spiral of the passions away from God towards sure destruction. So how, how then do we live like the psalmist? With clear understanding of the dangers of living solely by the mind or solely by the heart that we've just spoken about, we can now explore how God has designed us to be creatures of both the mind and of the heart. We too can learn to delight in God's law like the psalmist does. Since God does not allow a disconnect between the head and the heart, between the truth and joy, between doctrine and practice, between knowledge and passion, it would seem we could benefit greatly if we were to think about how to take care of both our minds and our hearts. And the way we we do this, I think, is summarized quite nicely by a guy called Michael Horton, who's an amazing uh, professor of systematic theology in the States. I had the privilege of meeting him when I I was there. Um, He discusses what he calls the four Ds of Scripture. Drama, doctrine, doxology, discipleship. Don't, remember, don't worry about remembering the words. But drama means the things that God has done and the things that God has spoken. There is a script which God has written us into. The drama, that which he is unfolding throughout history. And that leads to doctrine. Because we talk about what God has done and what God has said. And when we talk about what God has done and what God has said, we are led to doxology, which is praise. And that leads us to become more like Christ, discipleship. So we see what God has done. We talk about what he has said, what he is saying. Then uh, that leads us to theology, which should lead us to worship God and become more like Christ in the process. And this chain throughout each of these things is something the Bible will not let you break. It's impossible to divorce doctrine from duty. Let us not be hearers of the word only, but doers. Let's look at Luke 10.27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Seems that love for God means utilizing all that He's given us our hearts, our minds, our affections, our desires, the whole of our constitution. And there are countless ways in which to engage the mind and in which to engage the heart. But I, I think I'd like to stick with three that I think are faithful to the text, and I pray that will be fruitful for us. They are, one, read your Bible for your heart. One, read your Bible for your heart. Two, pray like the psalmists. Pray like the psalmists. And three, learn how to be a true worshiper. A true worshiper. Firstly, let's look at reading your Bible for your heart. God's word thunders, are we saying? 
that amazing? Thing is, modern reading of Scripture often stresses interpretive elements. It, it focuses on word studies, on grammar, on composition, on literary structures, and on phrasings. It has become very cerebral, very comprehension-orientated. That's extremely important. In fact, it's absolutely essential. But when we focus on these things at the expense of devotion, of meditation, of experiencing God, we are forgetting the main reason that God speaks to us, which is that it would bring us life and that it would lead us to worship. When we focus on interpretive elements, we often knock our prayer lives out of balance too. We end up praying, only making petitions to God, only confessing our sins. These things are incredibly important. In fact, essential. But should not a great deal of our prayer life be used to adore God, to delight in Him, to enjoy Him, as the psalmists do? I think another way to put this um, is that we tend to be more cerebral than affectional. We tend to prioritize the, heart, the head above the heart in our reading of the Bible and in our praying. Of course, it's important to faithfully use your brains to read the Bible. We need to be rational, but not rationalistic. Reason is important, but when it's made ultimate, we lose the sense of mystery and of tension that exists. And Paul so often spoke about it by using the phrase, the mysteries of Christ. There is much that can be um, that we can hold to be true without fully understanding it. You see, we are not God. We are not all-knowing. We will never be all-knowing. Revelation will be eternally unfolding. But there is a lot that we must hold to be true that we do not fully understand. And these are the mysteries of Christ which we must learn to embrace, to celebrate, and to be part of the fuel for our worship of God. I think many of us have taken this difficult road of prioritizing the mind over the heart. We've spent many hours in the Bible gathering facts and information to support our theology or to argue with someone we disagree with. I can resonate. I've spent so much time trolling through the Bible on an intellectual assignment rather than gathering daily food, daily bread for my soul. And because of God's grace, this has not been a complete waste because Knowledge of the content of the Bible does burst into life once the heart is engaged. But there are many years of joy and of growth that I've missed out upon as a result. If we're honest, another challenge to the employment of our heart in reading our Bibles comes from outside the church. It's the influence of the ruthless productivity craze. Culture is influencing the church a lot more than the church is influencing the culture in some ways because there's this myth that success in life is to do as much as possible by completing each task as quickly as we can. But God does not seem to work like that. Not only do we not make much time for scriptures, but when we do, the reading is hurried. Like, well, I've only got 15 minutes. I better read four chapters. Perhaps what's needed is for us to step back, 
to settle down. As Bill Hybel said, find that chair. And maybe we need to read at a pace that allows for reflection, for contemplation, for enjoyment, for devotion. Rushing through your Bible might make you seem like a devoted person. It might make you, uh, it might help you to gather information faster, but it's very unlikely to help you nourish, to help you shape, and to inflame your heart with the passions of God. Why? Well, when we are dealing with the heart, we are dealing with passions. And so we need to take care that what we are doing is going to shape our passions and our affections. I mentioned earlier that God has made the heart the seat of the will. And so it's desires and and passions that ultimately determine what we do. I mentioned that the challenge is that the heart still falls victim to sinful desires and passions. But there is good news. (laughs) Firstly, the power of sin and death for the Christian has been broken. There is a new man, a new creation. And we have access to the impulses of a new heart. Becoming a Christian is, is not about killing passion and becoming a dull seemingly dead zombie. It is about taking all the passion, all the zeal, all the desire, and heaping it on Christ. Christians do not have hearts of stone. We have hearts of flesh. God took out the heart of stone and He put in the heart of flesh, alive with new desires, alive with new motives, with Christ Jesus as their object. This word that comes from God, that can inflame our hearts. I don't know if you have read the scripture, I think it's in Acts, where discussing how the apostles preaching made them feel. They said, did our hearts not burn within us as he spoke? Lord, can our hearts not burn? burn within us as we hear the word, as we read the word, as we meditate on it, as we dwell on it. And to show how much of a heart matter it is. In, in worship, I was, I was crying there. I, I read Joel 2 verse 3. I've just added, written this on the side. From God, it says, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Don't, it's not about tearing your clothes. It is about tearing open your heart and receiving what God is saying. When we read the scriptures, our hearts are exposed. Our sin is laid bare for us to see. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes and says, Grab a hold of Christ. This is what the function of the word should do for us. The psalmist said, oh, I'm wicked. God, you are holy. Help me delight in your law. I meditate on it day and night. We need to become like that. Our hearts must be inflamed. And the means by which this occurs is by slowly, by carefully, by consistently, and by corporately 
learning and celebrating the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, number two, pray like the psalmist. I don't know if you noticed a bit of a theme in the, in the psalms we've read so far. One of the things that strikes me deeply when reading the psalms is how lively the conversation with God is. Amongst many things, it is honest, it is passionate, it is drenched with truth, it is reverent, it is confident, it is vigorous, and it's worshipful. The most godly and joyful men and women I know are men and women of prayer. And man, do they pray. It's something else. It's a glimpse of how these psalmists pray. So to help me, I sometimes just pray the psalms out loud. And I know that I need to do this more often. I must learn to pray. And I have a wonderful tutor in the psalmists. I encourage you to join me with them. Finally, number three, learn how to be a true worshiper. If there's one text we would have to go on for this, it would be John four, twenty-three to 24. Jesus said, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Remember, this was Jesus' response to the Sumerian woman who he encountered at the well, and she spoke about the worship that was going to be happening. And uh, she had used the word proskuneo, which is worship as like prostrated, fallen out in the body. And she talks about the location of the worship, this mountain in Jerusalem. So she was expressing her understanding of worship as something that is done outwardly and in a particular location. But Jesus makes it clear that worship is no longer outward and it is no longer bound or localized um, to a particular place. Of course, it often takes place with an outward expression and it always takes place somewhere, but that is not what makes worship worship. And Jesus said, the hour is coming, in the age to come, and is now here, here in us. And what marks this true worship, uh, which has broken into the present time from the glorious age to come, is that it is not bound to a particular place or a particular way of expressing. In instead, it is done in spirit and in truth. In spirit means this true worship is happening mainly as an inward spiritual event of the heart. It's not primarily an outward activity, although it may be expressed that way. In Matthew fifteen eight to 9, Jesus quoting from the Old Testament says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. See, when the heart is far from God, worship is vain. It is empty. It's inconsistent. The experience of the heart is defining, it's vital, it's indispensable to the essence of worship. And in truth means that true worship is a response to true views of God and is shaped and guided by true views of God. We worship God because of what we know to be true about Him. 
So Christian worship engages both the head and the heart. So again, the idea is not that it will be wrong to worship in a particular place. We have been commanded by Scripture not to forsake the gathering together for worship, which is um, on the Lord's Day, which is what we are doing here today, Um, or in a particular outward form. But simply that that is not what makes worship worship. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. So, read your Bible for your heart. Pray like the psalmists and learn to be a true worshiper. To those of you here today who experience this profound reality that the psalmist does, I'm filled with joy for you. I pray that you will experience this more and more each day and grow in it. And I encourage you to take on those who are not where you are. And that you will teach them, you will pray with them, and that you will encourage them. And to those of you who, just like me, struggle in this area, I pray that you have found hope today in this text and our study of it. I encourage you to find others who have success in this area. Become a student. Hunger to be like the psalmist. And you can be sure that God will lead you in his purposes for him to be glorified and for your joy to be full. The Westminster Confession of Faith Catechism in one one of the catechisms famously asks, what is the chief end of man? And then answers, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I pray that these realities have been opened to you today. God speaks. God is. What a glorious reality. And He speaks so that He may be glorified and that you may have joy. As you think about your Bible reading, as you think about your prayer life, as you think about your worship, it is also my prayer that you will be ever more powerfully consumed with God's glory and that you will abound in joy. To those of you who are not born again of the Spirit, those of you who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, those of you who do not know this God, of whom I've been speaking today. I pray that you have had a glimpse and that God will open your heart to the truth. That you will see that He is the Son of God, the one who can save, and that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word to us. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. We thank you that the scriptures testify to your redemptive work in history. That you sent your son to die for sinners that they may have life with you. We thank you for the good gifts of the heart and the mind. And we ask you today that you would help us to remember your grace towards us. That you would cause us to stir our hearts in worship and in joy. And that you would be glorified in all of this. To your name be glory and honor and power in all the earth. Now may the God of all joy fill your hearts with hope, with peace, with thanksgiving by the power of the Holy Spirit.